Chapter Nine of the Road to Understanding. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Road to Understanding by Eleanor H. Porter. Chapter Nine. A Bottle of Ink. Burke Denby did not attempt to deceive himself after that Sunday dinner. His marriage had been a mistake, and he knew it. He was disappointed, ashamed, and angry. He told himself that he was heartbroken, that he still loved Helen dearly. Only he did not like to be with her now. She made him nervous and rubbed him the wrong way. Her mood never seemed to fit in with his. She had so many little ways. Sometimes he told himself irritably that he believed that if it were a big thing like a crime that Helen had committed, he could be heroic and forgiving and glory in it. But forever to battle against a succession of never-ending irritations, always to encounter the friction of antagonistic aims and ideals, it was maddening. He was ashamed of himself, of course. He was ashamed of a lot of things that he said and did. But he could not help an explosion now and then. He felt as if somewhere within him was an irresistible force driving him to it. And the pity of it! Was he not indeed to be pitied? What had he not given up? As if it were his fault that he was now so disillusioned. He had supposed that marriage with Helen would be a fresh joy every morning, a new delight every evening, an unbelievable glory of happiness just being together. Now he did not want to be together. He did not want to go home to fretfulness, fault-finding, slovenliness, and perpetual criticism. He wanted to go home to peace and harmony, big, quiet rooms, servants that knew their business and dad and that was another thing dad dad had been right he himself had been wrong but that did not mean that it was easy to own up that he had been wrong sometimes he hardly knew which cut the deeper that he had been proved wrong thus losing his happiness or that his father had been proved right thus placing him in a position to hear the hated i told you so that Helen could never make him happy, Burke was convinced now. Never had he realized this so fully as since seeing her at his father's table that Sunday. Never had her ways so irritated him. Never had he so poignantly realized the significance of what he had lost and won. Never had he been so ashamed or so ashamed because he was ashamed as on that day. Never, he vowed, would he be placed in that same position again. As to Helen's side of the matter, Burke quite forgot that there was such a thing. When one is so very sorry for oneself, one forgets to be sorry for anybody else. And Burke was indeed very sorry for himself. Having never been in the habit of taking disagreeable medicine, he did not know how to take it now. Having been always accustomed to consider only himself, he considered only himself now. That Helen, too, might be disappointed and disillusioned, 
never occurred to him. It was perhaps a month later that another invitation to dinner came from John Denby. This time Burke did not stutter out a joyous, incoherent acceptance. He declined so promptly and emphatically that he quite forgot his manners for the moment, and had to attach to the end of his refusal a hurried and ineffectual, er, thank you, you're very kind, I'm sure. He looked up then and met his father's eyes, but instantly his gaze dropped. Uh, uh, Helen is not at all well, Dad, he still further added nervously. Of course I'll speak to her, but I don't think we can come. There was a moment's pause, and then very gravely John Denby said, Oh, I am sorry, son. Burke, with a sudden tightening of his throat, turned and walked away. He didn't laugh, he didn't sneer, he didn't look anyhow, only just plain sorry, choked the young man to himself. And he had such a magnificent chance to do all of them, but he just understood. Burke spoke to Helen that night. Father asked us to dinner next Sunday, but I said I didn't think we could go. I told him you weren't feeling well. I didn't think you'd want to go, and I didn't want to go myself. Helen frowned and pouted. Well, I've got my opinion of folks who refuse an invitation without even asking em if they want to go, she bridled. Not that I mind much in this case, though, if it's just a dinner. I thought once maybe he meant something, that he was giving in, you know, but I haven't seen any signs of that. And as for just going to dinner, I can't say I'm specially anxious for that, mean as I feel now. No, I thought not, said Burke. And there the matter ended. As the summer passed, Burke fell into the way of going often to see his father, though never at mealtime. He went alone. Helen said she did not care to go, and that she did not see what fun Burke could find in it anyway. To Burke, these hours that he spent with his father, chatting and smoking in the dim old library, or on the vine-shaded veranda, were like a breeze blowing across the desert of existence, like water in a thirsty land. From day to day he planned for these visits. From hour to hour he lived upon them. To all appearances John Denby and his son had picked up their old comradeship exactly where the marriage had severed it. Even to Burke's watchful, sensitive eyes, the wall seemed quite gone. There was, however, one difference. Mother was never mentioned. John Denby never spoke of her now. There was plenty to talk about. There were all the old interests, and there was business. Burke was giving himself heart and soul to business these days. In July he won another promotion, and was given an advance in wages. Often, to Burke's infinite joy, his father consulted him about matters and things quite beyond his normal position, and showed in other ways his approval of his son's progress. Helen, the marriage, and the Dale Street home life were never mentioned, for which Burke was thankful. He couldn't say anything I'd want to hear, said Burke to himself at times, and I, I can't say anything he wants to hear. Best forget it, if we can. To forget it seemed, indeed, in these days to be Burke's aim and effort. Always had Burke tried to forget things. From the day his six-months-old fingers had flung the offending rattle behind him, had Burke endeavored to thrust out of sight and mind 
everything that annoyed and helen and marriage had become very annoying systematically therefore he was trying to forget them his attitude indeed was not unlike that of a small boy who weary of his game of marbles cries oh come let's play something else i'm tired of this an attitude which naturally was not conducive to happiness either for himself or for anyone else particularly as the game he was playing was marriage not marbles the summer passed and october came life at the dale street flat had settled into a monotony of discontent and dreariness helen discouraged disappointed and far from well dragged through the housework day by day wishing each night that it were morning and each morning that it were night a state of mind scarcely conducive to happiness on her part for all that burke was away so many evenings now helen was not so lonely as she had been in the spring for in mrs jones place had come a new neighbor mrs cobb and mrs cobb was even brighter and more original than mrs jones ever was and helen liked her very much she was a mine of information as to housekeeping secrets and she was teaching helen how to make the soft and dainty little garments that would be needed in november but she talked even more loudly than mrs jones had talked and her laugh was nearly always the first sound that burke heard across the hall every morning moreover she possessed a phonograph which according to helen played perfectly grand tunes and one of these tunes was usually the first thing that burke heard every night when he came home so he called her coarse and noisy and declared that she was even worse than mrs jones whereas helen retorted that of course he wouldn't like her if she did which while possibly true did not make him like either her or mrs cobb any better the baby came in november it was a little girl helen wanted to call her vivian mabel she said she thought that was a swell name and that it was the name of her favorite heroine in a perfectly grand book but burke objected strenuously he declared very emphatically that no daughter of his should have to go through life tagged like a vaudeville fly-by-night of course helen cried and of course burke felt ashamed of himself helen's tears had always been a potent weapon though from overuse they were fast losing a measure of their power the first time he saw a cry the foundations of the earth sank beneath him and he dropped into a fathomless abyss from which he thought he would never rise it was the same the next time and the next the fourth time as he felt the now familiar sensation of sinking down 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 he outflung desperate hands and found an unexpected support his temper after that it was always with him it helped to tinge with righteous indignation his despair and it kept him from utterly melting into weak subserviency still even yet he was not used to them his wife's tears sometimes he fled from them sometimes he endured them in dumb despair behind set teeth sometimes he raved and ranted in a way he was always ashamed of afterward but still they had the power in a measure to make his heart like water within him so now about the baby's name he called himself a brute and a beast to bring tears to the eyes of the little mother toward whom since the baby's advent he felt a remorseful tenderness 
but he still maintained that he could have no man or woman call his daughter Vivian Mabel. But I should think you'd let me name my own baby, wailed his wife. Burke choked back a hasty word and assumed his pet, I'll be patient if it kills me, air. And you shall name it, he soothed her. Listen, here are pencil and paper. Now write down a whole lot of names that you'd like, and I'll promise to select one of them. Then you'll be naming the baby all right, see? Helen did not see quite that she would be naming the baby, but knowing from past experience of her husband's temper that resistance would be unpleasant, so she obediently took the paper and spent some time writing down a list of names. Burke frowned a good deal when he saw the list, and declared that it was pretty poor pickings, and that he ought to have known better than to have bound himself to a silly fool promise like that. But he chose a name, he said he would keep his word, of course, and he selected Dorothy Elizabeth as being less impossible than its accompanying Veraz, Violets, and Clarissa Muriels. For the first few months after the baby's advent, Burke spent much more time at home, and seemed very evidently to be trying to pay especial attention to his wife's comfort and welfare. He was proud of the baby, and declared it was the cutest little kid going. He poked it in its ribs, thrust a tentative finger into the rose-leaf of a hand, emitting a triumphant chuckle of delight when the rose-leaf became a tightly clutching little fist and even allowing the baby to be placed once or twice into his rather reluctant and fearful arms. But for the most part he contented himself with merely looking at it and asking how soon it would walk and talk, and when would it grow its teeth and hair. Burke was feeling really quite keenly these days the solemnity and responsibility of fatherhood. He had called into being a new soul, a little life, was in his hands to train. By and by this tiny pink roll of humanity would be a prattling child, a little girl, a young lady, and all the way she would be turning to him for companionship and guidance. It behooved him, indeed, to look well to himself, that he should always be, in all ways, a fit pattern. It was a solemn thought. No more temper tantrums and impatience, no more idle repinings and useless regrets. What mattered if he were disillusioned and heartsick? Did he want this child of his, this beautiful daughter, to grow up in such an atmosphere? Never. At once, therefore, he began to cultivate patience, contentment, tranquillity, and calmness of soul. He, the pattern, must be all things that he would wish her to be. And how delightful it would be when she was old enough to meet him on his own ground, to be a companion for him, the companion he had not found in his wife. She would be pretty, of course, sweet-tempered and cheerful. Was he not to train her himself? She would be capable and sensible, too. He would see to that. To no man in the future should she bring the tragedy of disillusionment that her mother had brought to him. No, indeed. For that matter, however, he should not let her marry anyone for a long time. He should keep her himself. Perhaps he would not let her marry at all. He did not think much of this marriage business anyway. Not that he was going to show that feeling any longer now, of course. 
From now on he was to show only calm contentment and tranquillity of soul, no matter what the circumstances. Was he not a father? Had he not in the hollow of his hand a precious young life to train? Again, all this was very well in theory, but in practice. Dorothy Elizabeth was not six months old before the young father discovered that parenthood changed conditions, not people. He felt just as irritated at the way Helen buttered a whole slice of bread at a time and said swell and you was as before. Just as impatient because he could not buy what he wanted, just as annoyed at the purple cushion on the red sofa. He was surprised and disappointed. He told himself that he had supposed that when a fellow made good resolutions, he was given some show of a chance to keep them. But how could anyone cultivate calm, contentment, and tranquility of soul as he was situated? First there was not only his old disappointments and annoyances to contend with, but a multitude of new ones. It was as if, indeed, each particular torment had taken unto itself wife and children. So numerous had they become. There was really now no peace at home. There was nothing but the baby. He had not supposed that any one thing or person could so monopolize everything and everybody. When the baby was awake, Helen acted as if she thought the earth swung on its axis solely to amuse it. When it slept, she seemed to think the earth ought to stand still, lest it wake baby up. With the same wholesale tyranny, she marshaled into line everything and everybody on the earth, plainly regarding nothing and no one as of consequence except in its relationship to baby. Such unimportant things as meals and housework in comparison with baby were of even less than second consequence, and Burke grew to feel himself more and more an alien and a nuisance in his own home. Moreover, where before he had found disorder and untidiness, he now found positive chaos, and however fond he was of the baby, he grew unutterably weary of searching for his belongings among baby's rattles, balls, shirts, socks, milk bottles, blankets, and powder puffs. The cool, calm serenity of his determination he found it difficult to realize, and the delights and responsibilities of fatherhood began to pall upon him. It looked to be so long a way ahead even to teeth, talking and walking to say nothing of the charm and companionship of a young lady-daughter. Children were all very well, of course, very desirable, but did they never do anything but cry? Couldn't they be taught that nights were for sleep, and that other people in the house had some rights besides themselves? And must they always choose four o'clock in the morning for a fit of the colic? Helen said it was colic. For his part, he believed it was nothing more or less than temper, plain downright temper and so it went another winter passed and spring came matters were no better but rather worse a series of incompetent maids had been adding considerably to the expense and little to the comfort of the household helen as a mistress was not a success she understood neither her own duties nor those of the maid which resulted in short periods of poor service and frequent changes. 
July came with its stifling heat, and Dorothy Elizabeth, now twenty months old, showed a daily increasing disapproval of life in general and of her own existence in particular. Helen, worn and worried and half sick from care and loss of sleep, grew day by day more fretful, more difficult to get along with. Burke also half sick from loss of sleep and consumed with a fierce inward rebellion against everything and everybody, including himself, was no less difficult to get along with. Of course, this state of affairs could not continue forever. The tension had to snap sometime, and it snapped over a bottle of ink in a baby's hand. It happened on Bridget's afternoon out, when Helen was alone with the baby. Dorothy Elizabeth, propped up in her high chair beside the dining-room table, where her mother was writing a letter, reached covetous hands toward the fascinating little fat black bottle. The next instant a wild shout of glee and an inky tide surging from an upside-down bottle, held high above a golden head, told that the quest had been successful. Things happened then very fast. There was a dismayed cry from Helen, half a dozen angry spats on a tiny hand, a series of shrieks from Dorothy Elizabeth, and a rapidly spreading inky pall over baby, dress, table, rug, and Helen's new frock. At that moment Burke appeared in the door. With wrathful eyes he swept the scene before him, losing not one detail of scolding woman, shrieking child, dinnerless table, and inky chaos and then he strode into the room. Well, by George, he snapped, nice restful place for a tired man to come to, isn't it? This is your idea of a happy home, I suppose. The overwrought wife and mother, with every nerve tingling, turned sharply. Oh, yes, that's right. Blame me. Blame me for everything. Maybe you think I think this is a happy restful place, too. Maybe you think this is what I thought would be being married to you. But I can tell you it just isn't. Maybe you think I ain't tired of working and pinching and slaving and never having any fun and being scolded and blamed all the time because I don't eat and walk and stand up and sit down the way you want me to. And where are you going? She broke off as her husband reached for the hat he had just tossed aside and started for the door. Burke turned quietly. His face was very white. I'm going down to the square to get something to eat. Then I'm going up to father's and you needn't sit up for me. I shall stay all night. All night? Yes, I'd like to sleep for once, and that's what I can't do here. The next moment the door had banged behind him. Helen, left alone with the baby, fell back limply. Why, baby, he, he, and then she caught the little ink-stained figure to her and began to cry convulsively. In the street outside, Burke strode along with his head high and his jaw sternly set. He was very angry. He told himself that he had a right to be angry. Surely a man was entitled to some consideration. In spite of it all, however, there was, in a faraway corner of his soul, an uneasy consciousness of a tiny voice of scorn dubbing this running away of his the act of a coward and a cad. Very resolutely, however, he silenced this voice by recounting again to himself how really abused he was. It was a long story, 
it served to occupy his mind all through the unappetizing meal he tried to eat at the cheap restaurant before climbing Elm Hill. His father greeted him cordially, and with no surprise in voice or manner, which was what Burke had expected, inasmuch as he had again fallen into the way of spending frequent evenings at the old home. Tonight, however, Burke himself was constrained and ill at ease. His jaw was still firmly set, and his head was still high, but his heart began to fail him, and his mind was full of questionings. How would his father take it, this proposition to stay all night? He would understand something of what it meant. He could not help but understand. But what would he say? How would he act? Would he say in actions, if not in words, that dreaded, I told you so? Would it unseal his lips on a subject so long tabooed, and set him into a lengthy dissertation on the foolishness of his son's marriage? Burke believed that, as he felt now, he could not stand that. But he could stand less easily going back to the Dale Street flat that night. He could go to a hotel, of course, but he didn't want to do that. He wanted Dad, but he did not want Dad to talk. How is the baby? asked John Denby as Burke dropped himself into a chair on the cool, quiet veranda. I thought she was not looking very well the last time Helen wheeled her up here. Always John Denby's first inquiry now was for his little granddaughter. Oh, the baby? Oh, she's all right. Burke paused for a short laugh. She's well. John Denby took his cigar from his lips and turned sharply. But she's not all right? Burke laughed again. Oh, yes, she's all right, too, I suppose, he retorted a bit grimly. But she was a... Hmm. Well, I'll tell you. And he gave a graphic description of his return home that night. Jove, what a mess! And ink, too, ejaculated John Denby, with more than a tinge of sympathy in his voice. How'd she ever manage to clean it up? Burke shrugged his shoulders. Ask me something easy. I don't know. I'm sure. I cleared out. Without your dinner? John Denby asked the question, after a very brief but very tense silence. My dinner I got in the square. Burke's lips snapped together again tight shut. John Denby said nothing. His eyes were gravely fixed on the glowing tip of the cigar in his hand. Burke cleared his throat and hesitated. He had not intended to ask his question quite so soon, but suddenly he was consumed with an overwhelming desire to speak out and get it over. He cleared his throat again. Dad, would you mind my sleeping here tonight? It's just that I, I, I want a good night's sleep for once, he plunged on hurriedly, in answer to a swift something that he saw leap to his father's eyes and I can't get it there with the baby and all. There was a perceptible pause, then steadily and with easy cordiality came John Denby's reply. Why, certainly, my boy, I'm glad to have you. I'll ring at once for Benton to see that, that your old room is made ready for you, he added, touching a push-button near his chair. Later, when Benton had come and gone, with his kindly old face alight and eager, Burke braced himself for what he thought was inevitable. 
something would come of course the only question was what would it be but nothing came that is nothing in the nature of what burke had expected john denby after benton had left the veranda turned to his son with a pleasantly casual oh brett was saying today that the k and o people had granted us an extension of time on that bridge contract uh, yes plunged in burke warmly and with the words every taut nerve and muscle in his body relaxed as if cut in twain it came later though when he had ceased to look for it it came just as he was thinking of saying good night it has occurred to me son broached john denby after a short pause that helen may be tired and in sore need of a rest burke caught his breath and held it a moment suspended when before had his father mentioned helen save to speak of her casually in connection with the baby uh, yes very likely he stammered a sudden vision coming to him of helen as he had seen her on the floor in the midst of the inky chaos a short time before you're not the only one that isn't finding the present state of affairs a bed of roses burke said john denby then uh, uh, no muttered the amazed husband in his ears now rang helen's maybe you think i ain't tired of working and pinching and slaving involuntarily he shivered and glanced at his father dad could not of course have heard i have a plan to propose announced john denby quietly after a moment's silence as i said i think helen needs a rest and a change i've seen quite a little of her since the baby came you know and i've noticed many things i will send her a check for ten thousand dollars tomorrow if she will take the baby and go away for a time say to her old home for a visit but there is one other condition he continued lifting a quick hand to silence burke's excited interruption i need a rest and change myself i should like to go to alaska again and i'd like to have you go with me will you go burke sprang to his feet and began to pace up and down the wide veranda from boyhood burke had always thrashed things out on his feet for a full minute now he said nothing then abruptly he stopped and wheeled about his face was very white dad i can't it seems too much like like no it isn't in the least like quitting or running away supplied john denby reading unearingly his son's hesitation you're not quitting at all i'm asking you to go indeed i'm begging you to go burke i want you i need you i'm not an old man i know but i feel like one these last two years have not been a bed of roses for me either in spite of a certain lightness in his words the man's voice shook a little i don't think you know boy how your old dad has missed you don't i i can guess burke wheeled and resumed his nervous stride the words as he flung them out were at once a challenge and an admission but helen he stopped short waiting i've answered that i've told you helen needs a rest and a change again to the distraught husband's ears came the echo of a woman's wailing maybe you think i ain't tired of working and pinching and slaving then you don't think helen will feel that i'm running away 
A growing hope was in his eyes, but his brow still carried its frown of doubt. Not if she has a check for ten thousand dollars, replied John Denby a bit grimly. Burke winced. A painful red reached his forehead. It is indeed a large sum, sir. Too large, he resented, with sudden stiffness. Thank you, but I'm afraid we can't accept it after all. John Denby saw his mistake at once, but he did not make the second mistake of showing it. Nonsense, he laughed lightly, but with no sign of the sudden panic of fear within him, lest the look on his son's face meant the downfall of all his plans. I made it large purposely. Remember, I'm borrowing her husband for a season, and she needs some recompense. Besides, it'll mean a play-day for herself. You'll not be so unjust to Helen as to refuse her the means to enjoy that. Not that she'll spend it all for that, of course, but it will be a comfortable feeling to know that she has it. Yes, of course, hesitated Burke, still frowning. Then we'll call that settled. I know, but, of course, if you put it that way, why, I— Well, I do put it just that way, nodded the father lightly. Now let's go in. I've got some maps and timetables I want you to see. I'm planning a different route from the one we took with the doctor, a better one, I think. But let's see what you say. Come. And he led the way to the library. Burke's head came up alertly. His shoulders lost their droop and his brow its frown. A new light flamed into his eyes and a new springiness leaped into his step. Always from the time his two-year-old lips had begged to see the wheels go round had Burke's chief passion and delight been travelling. As he bent now over the maps and timetables that his father spread before him, voice and hands fairly trembled with eagerness. And then suddenly a chance word sent him to his feet again, the old look of despair on his face. Dad, I can't, he choked. I can't be a quitter. You don't want me to be. With a sharp word, John Denby, too, leaped to his feet. Something of the dogged persistence that had won for him wealth and power glowed in his eyes as he went straight to his son and laid both hands on his shoulders. Burke, I had not meant to say this, he began quietly, but perhaps it's just as well that I do. Possibly you think I've been blind all these past months. But I haven't. I've seen a good deal. Now I want you and Helen to be happy. I don't want to see your life or hers wrecked. I believe there's a chance yet for you two people to travel together with some measure of peace and comfort. And I'm trying to give you that chance. There's just one thing to do, I believe, and that is to be away from each other for a while. You both need it. For weeks I've been planning and scheming how it could be done. How do you suppose I happen to have this Alaska trip all cut and dried, even down to the train and boat schedules, if I hadn't done some thinking? Tonight came my chance, so I spoke. But to be a quitter, you're not quitting. You're stopping to get your breath. There's my work. You've made good, and more than good there, son. I've been proud of you every inch of the way. You're no quitter there. Thanks, Dad. Only the sudden mist in his eyes and the shake in his voice showed how really moved Burke was. 
but helen he stammered then will be better off without you for a time and i will be better off without her for the same time while i shall be oh so infinitely better off with you ah son but i've missed you so it was the same longing cry that had gone straight to burke's heart a few minutes before you'll come there was a tense silence burke's face plainly showed the struggle within him a moment more and he spoke dad i'll have to think it out he temporized brokenly i'll let you know in the morning good if john denby was disappointed he did not show it we'll let it go till morning then meanwhile it can do no harm to look at these however he smiled with a wave of his hand toward the maps and timetables no of course not acquiesced burke promptly relieved that his father agreed so willingly to the delay half an hour later he went upstairs to his old room to bed it was a fine old room he had forgotten that a bedroom could be so large and so convenient benton plainly had been there also plainly his hand had not lost its cunning nor his brain the memory of how master burke liked things the arrangement of the lights the glass of milk by his bed the turned-down spread and sheet the latest magazine ready to his hand even the size and number of towels in his bathroom testified to benton's loving hand and good memory with a sigh that was almost a sob burke dropped himself into a chair and looked about him it was all so peaceful so restful so comfortable and it was so quiet he had forgotten that a room could be so quiet in spite of his weariness burke's preparations for bed were both lengthy and luxurious he had forgotten what absolute content lay in plenty of space towels and hot water to say nothing of soap that was in its proper place and did not have to be fished out of a baby basket or a kitchen sink burke did not intend to go to sleep at once he intended first to settle in his mind what he would do with this proposition of his father's he would have to refuse it of course it would not do still he ought to give it proper consideration for dad's sake that much was due dad he stretched himself luxuriously on the bed he had forgotten that a bed could be so soft and so just right and began to think but the next thing he knew he was waking up his first feeling was a half unconscious but delightful sensation of physical comfort his next a dazed surprise as his slowly opened eyes encountered shapes and shadows and arc-light beams on the walls and ceiling quite unlike those in his dale street bedroom then instantly came a vague but poignant impression that something had happened followed almost as quickly by full realization like a panorama then the preceding evening lay before him helen the crying baby the trailing ink the angry words the flight dad his welcome the pleasant chat the remarkable proposition oh yes and it was of the proposition that he was going to think he could not accept it of course but what a trump dad had been to offer it what a trump he had been in the way he offered it too what a trump he had been all through about it for that matter 
not a word of reproach not a hint of patronage not even a look that could be construed into that hated i told you so just a straightforward offer of this check for helen and the trip for himself and actually in a casual matter-of-fact tone of voice as if ten thousand dollar checks and alaskan trips were everyday occurrences but they weren't a trip like that did not drop into a man's plate every day of course he could not take it but what a dandy one it would be and with dad for that matter dad really needed him dad ought not to go off like that alone and so far besides dad wanted him how his voice had trembled when he said i don't think you know boy how your old dad has missed you as if he didn't indeed as if he hadn't done some missing on his own account and the check of course he could not let helen accept that either ten thousand dollars but how generous of dad to offer it and of course it would be good for helen poor helen she needed a rest all right and she deserved one it would be fine for her to go back to her old hometown for a little while and no mistake not that she would need to spend that whole ten thousand dollars on that of course but even a little slice of a sum like that would give her all the frills and furbelows she wanted for herself and the baby and send them into the country for all the rest of the summer besides leaving nine-tenths of it for a nest egg for the future and what a comfortable feeling it would give her always a little money when she wanted it for anything no more of the hated pinching and starving for he should tell her to spend it and take some comfort with it that was what it was for besides when it was gone he would have some for her what a boon it would be to her that ten thousand dollars of course looking at it in that light it was almost his duty to accept the proposition and give her the chance to have it but then after all he couldn't why it was like accepting charity he hadn't earned it still if hard work and anguish of mind counted he had earned it twice over slaving away at the beck of brett and his minions and he had made good so far dad had said so what a trump dad was to speak as he did and when dad said a thing like that it meant something well there was nothing to do of course but to go back and buckle down to work and to life in the dale street flat to be sure there was the baby of course he was fond of the baby and it was highly interesting to see her achieve teeth hair a backbone and sense if only she would hurry it up a little faster though did babies always take so long to grow up burke stretched himself luxuriously and gazed about the room the arc light outside had gone out and dawn was approaching more and more distinctly each loved object in the room was coming into view to his nostrils came the perfume of the roses and honeysuckles in the garden below his window to his ears came the chirp and twitter of the bird calls from the trees and over his senses stole the soothing peace of absolute physical ease once more drowsily he went back to his father's offer once more in his mind he argued it but this time with a difference thus so potent sometimes is the song of a bird the scent of a flower the shape of a loved familiar object or even the feel of a soft bed beneath one after all might he not be making a serious mistake 
if he did not accede to his father's wishes? Of course, so far as he personally was concerned, the answer would be an unequivocal refusal of the offer. But there was his father to consider, and there was Helen to think of, yes, and the baby. How much better it would be for them, for all of them, if he accepted it. Helen and the baby could have months of fresh air, ease, and happiness without delay, to say nothing of innumerable advantages later. Why, when you came to think of it, that would be enough if there were nothing else. But there was something else. There was Dad, good old Dad. How happy he'd be. Besides, Dad really needed him. How ever had he thought for a moment of sending Dad off to Alaska alone, and just after an illness, too? What could he be thinking of to consider it for a moment? That settled it. He should go. He would stifle all silly feelings of pride and the like, and he would make Dad, Helen, and the baby happy. Which question, having been satisfactorily decided, Burke turned over and settled himself for a doze before breakfast. He did not get it, however. His mind was altogether too full of timetables, boat schedules, mountain peaks, and forest trails. Jove, but that was going to be a dandy trip. It was later, when Burke was leisurely dressing and planning out the day before him, that the bothersome question came to him as to how he should tell Helen. He was reminded also emphatically of the probable scene in store for him when he should go home at six o'clock that night, and he hated scenes. For that matter, there would probably be another one, too, when he told her that he was going away for a time. To be sure, there was the $10,000 check, and, of course, very soon he could convince her that it was really all for her best happiness. After she gave it a little thought, however, it would be all right, he was positive. But there was certain to be some unpleasantness at first, particularly as she was sure to be not a little difficult over his running, er, rather going away the night before. And he wished he could avoid it in some way, if only he did not have to go home. His face cleared suddenly. Why, of course, he would write. How stupid of him not to have thought of it before. He could say then just what he wanted to say, and she would have a chance to think it over calmly and sensibly, and see how really fine it was for her and the baby. That was the way to do it, and the only way. Writing. He could not be unnerved by her tears. Of course, she would cry at first. She always cried. Or exasperated into saying things he would be sorry for afterward. He could say just enough and not too much in a letter and say it right. Then early in the following week, just before he was to start on his trip, he would go down to the Dale Street house and spend the last two or three days with Helen and the baby, picking up his traps and planning with Helen some of the delightful things she could do with that $10,000. By that time she would, of course, have entirely come around to his point of view, even if she had not seen it quite that way at first, and they could have a few really happy days together something which would be quite impossible if they should meet now with the preceding evening fresh in their minds and have one of their usual wretched scenes of tears recriminations and wranglings for the present then he would stay where he was helen would be all right with bridget 
his father would be overjoyed he knew and as for the few toilet necessities he could buy those he needed some new things to take away so that was settled with a mind at rest again and a heart aflame with joy burke hurried into his garments and skipped downstairs like a boy his face before his lips got a chance told his father of his decision but his lips did not lag long behind he had expected that his father would be pleased but he was not quite prepared for the depth of emotion that shook his father's voice and dimmed his father's eyes and that ended the half uttered declaration of joy with what was very nearly a sob if anything indeed were needed to convince burke that he was doing just right in taking this trip with his father it could be needed no longer after that look of ineffable peace and joy on that father's face breakfast with so much to talk of prolonged itself like a college spread until burke with a cry of dismay pulled out his watch and leaped to his feet jove do you know what time it is dad he cried laughingly behold how this life of luxury has me already in its clutches i should have been off an hour ago john denby lifted a detaining hand not so fast my boy he smiled i've got you and i mean to keep you a few minutes longer but oh i telephoned brett this morning that you wouldn't be down till late if you came at all you telephoned this morning puzzled burke sinking slowly into his chair again but you didn't know then that i he stopped once more no i didn't know then that you'd agree to my proposition answered john denby with a characteristically grim smile but i knew if you did agree we'd both have some talking to do and if you didn't i should i meant still to convince you you see i see nodded the younger man smiling in his turn so i wouldn't go down this morning we've lots of plans to make besides there's your letter yes there's my letter now this time the young man did not smile i've got to write my letter of course end of chapter ten